Is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Have you ever thought that? Have you ever had that moment in your life where you've wondered, this could just be a bit too hard, or it's it's just not in God's realm, in his reach, that this for the Lord to work in is too hard? Have you ever thought that? I have. And so I'm guessing you may have too, because we are so merely human. We are creatures. Have you ever thought, This is too hard for the Lord. Well, let me tell you about Will and Barge. That sound like kind of cartoon characters, don't they? But they're real people that I know. I knew them 25 years ago when I first met them. Let me tell you about Will and Barge. Will first. Um, I met Will running laps. So 25 years ago, I used to play football, uh, rugby. I didn't play very well. Um, I wasn't a master of the game at all, not even a good apprentice. Um, but I didn't play rugby necessarily just for the sake of rugby. I played rugby not recruiting people for the rugby team, but recruiting from the rugby team for people to meet Jesus. I wanted people to meet Jesus because that's what they really need in life. Um, they need Jesus Christ. So I learned to play this game I knew nothing about, and I wanted people to be able to meet Jesus, lead them to Christ. One day I find myself running laps. It's hot, it's summer, kind of pre-season. We're running around the Oval and I'm running next to this guy. I don't know him. I said, hi, my name's Russ. And he said his name, which in those days at uni, at Ag College, we had nicknames. It's part of a fraternity thing. It's a bit weird. The vice chancellor is still trying to get rid of it. It exists for 100 years. So he had a nickname and he told me his nickname and I thought, I'm not saying that out loud. And so I said, um, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to say that name. Uh, I just don't feel comfortable saying that word. So what's your real name? And, uh, and if you're interested, my nickname was Chauffeur. Chauffeur. Um, we can talk about why later. But um, he said his name was Will. I said, my name's Russ. So we're running and we met and became friends. And over time, I got to know Will. And eventually, I prayed for the boldness to bring Will to church. Ever prayed that prayer before? Just boldness, like Acts 4 style boldness. You know, in Acts 4, the church prays for boldness. Uh, There's lots happening against the church. They're worried about the politics of the world they're living in, but they don't pray for a new emperor. They don't pray for an election. They don't even pray for a democracy. What do they pray for? Boldness. And so I prayed for boldness that I would be able to bring Will to church, invite him and bring him as a friend to church. And then, to my surprise, Will came to church. I was like, oh. I did not see that coming. And I should have, 20-year-old Russ, praying for boldness to bring a friend to church. I should have seen it coming, but you know what? Well, to my surprise, the Lord answered that prayer and he came. And then I prayed that the Holy Spirit would so work in will that he would repent and believe in Jesus. And then to my surprise, the Holy Spirit worked in will and he repented and believed in Jesus. And again, I was a bit, oh, I did not see that coming. Will had become a Christian, and right now he lives with his family, discipling his children. Will is a Christian, he lives in Tamworth, and Nick knows him from Tamworth days. I saw Will actually a few years ago, I was at the other footy, the AFL. Someone was trying to get me to get into the game, and so they took me along to a live game. I'm sitting in the MCG, and who should sit two rows in front of me, but there's Will. Say, Will! And I found his communication card that he ticked, I'm interested in Jesus, and I framed it and sent it to him. 
That's how Will became a Christian. But then there was Barge. Now, Barge, um, I'm hoping you've already guessed, is not his real name. I don't know a mother who would say, you know what, I just love Barges so much, I'm going to name my child Barge. But Barge was nicknamed Barge. It was a name I was happy to say out loud. And so I knew Barge as Barge for a long time until I found out his real name later. But I, I just knew him as Barge. But more than that, Barge was that kind of guy. As in, Barge was that kind of guy who you thought, you're never going to be interested in me bringing you to church. Like, I'm not even going to ask you. Like, pray for boldness and all that, Lord, yeah, fine, okay. But, you know, like, happy for that not to be on my kind of agenda. So, Barge was that kind of guy that I thought would never be interested in Jesus until he was interested in Jesus. And so, Barge to my surprise, came to church. Second one comes to church. And I was surprised. I did not see that coming. More so than with Will. And then I prayed, because Barge was that kind of guy when he wasn't at church and he just started coming and he was a little bit kind of irritating and a bit mean, I prayed that I would be able to be friends towards Barge. And I prayed that Barge would become a Christian, because you know you're supposed to pray that and all that kind of thing. And then to my surprise, Barge became a Christian. Do you see a trend here, friends? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Anything the Lord promises, is it too hard for the Lord? Genesis 18 is going to change your life when you see this. It's going to change, I pray, your prayers. It's going to change how we pray as a church, how we undertake our ministry as a congregation. So let's dive in and have a look at Genesis 18 that Sarah read so beautifully, so excellently, it's how it's meant to be read. That scene before us is a very human moment, isn't it? It's a very human moment that you could think, yeah, that would be me. Like, I would be like that. I'd be like Sarah. I would be like Abraham. Such a human moment for us, written into the Bible, for us to see the God who is so gracious. Let's meet him again. So we see here in in Genesis 18, verses 1 to 15, this first section um, on that sermon outline, I've entitled it, Is Anything Too Hard for the Lord? There are three key things to see here. And the first one is, is anything too hard for the Lord? Because when we meet Abraham here, when we're following along in his life in this Genesis series, when we meet him here in Genesis 18, he's 99 years old. I don't know if you know anyone 99 years old, but if you have met someone 99 years old or had someone in your family or you visit someone in the aged care facility, the home that's 99 years old, they're um, clearly 99, right? They've been around a while and they're frail and fragile. He's 99. But we meet him as 99 and him and his whole household are still trusting in God's promises. Yes, they've had their falls. They've had their struggles. They've had their kind of step off the track moments, but he, 99 years old, in the last episode we saw, he covenanted with God, it was God's covenant, and because they believed in God's promises, here is 99-year-old Abraham freshly circumcised. Him and the males, all the males in his household. He's trusting in God's promises, and he feels it. The sacraments are a sign. The Lord's Supper, we taste and remember. 
That sacrament for them, the Old Testament sacrament of circumcision, it's, it's felt. He knows it. It's a reminder. God has promised. So that when we meet them on this day, here is Abraham, 99 years old. He's done his morning's work. He's having a rest in the door of his tent in the heat of the day. And then he sees three men standing in front of him. Now, what we see before us is a scene of ancient Near East hospitality. Because look, notice the language. He sees three men and there's all this hurried language. He runs. He hurries. He says to his wife, Sarah, quick. He says to the servants, quick. There's all this running and scurrying going on to serve these three men. In in ancient Near East hospitality, um, this is, this is fairly normal and, and it, and normally he does what he does. Look, look at this. He offers them a morsel of bread. But you notice what happens? He provides a feast to rival a roast. He offers a morsel and gives them a feast. And yet the feast is not so much going to be for them. The feast is for Abraham. For as Abraham sees three men, notice in verse 3 here, he calls them Lord. Now in your Bibles there, it's lowercase. So Lord, L-O-R-D, lowercase Lord. Common language of the day, even for centuries, to understand calling someone a ruler. To say to someone, I, I, I submit to you, Lord. So he calls this someone Lord. But as Moses writes, and the narration tells us, this is more than just a visiting dignitary. This is someone else. Because Moses, who narrates this, who writes this book... He says it's L-O-R-D, uppercase, Lord. What we see here as Moses narrates is a beautiful scene because this is not just some dignitary visiting. This is the Lord God himself. And as we'll see later, two angels with the Lord. This is the pre-incarnate Christ with two angels. It's a beautiful scene where once the Lord had walked with Adam... In the garden, now the Lord eats with Abraham under a tree. As an aside, just a bit of textual analysis and for your interest, as you look in um, in verse 1, it says, and the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre. See that in verse 1, uppercase L-O-R-D. Um, that translate, uppercase L-O-R-D translates what we call a tetragrammaton. And you're going, what tetra, what now? The Tetragrammaton is four letters, four consonants in Hebrew, right? So it's uh, four consonants in Hebrew, so yit, hey, vav, hey. And, and that, when we see in the Hebrew Bible, that is when the writer is saying, this is um, the, the same word that is used when Moses meets the Lord. And it translates as a verb, I am who I am, or I will be who I be. Now, there are translators and commentators that want to make a lot of hay out of saying it should be said as Jehovah or it should be said as Yahweh. But here's the thing, friends, we're not sure because the vowel pointing had to be put in later and we just don't know, which is why translators wisely just say L-O-R-D uppercase to show this is God's name, his revealed name. So if you want to use Yahweh or Jehovah, fine, okay, but we just don't make a big deal of it. And if you're wondering why, there's a great article by John McLean. He's a vice principal at Christ College who's written an article about why we don't make a huge thing out of that, just in case we're actually saying something we probably shouldn't. So that's an aside, your sermon aside for today. Put that on the side table and we'll keep going. 
Because the point is this, your Bibles are showing you, as Abraham says, Lord, lowercase, he doesn't yet recognize who this is, but Moses is saying, verse 1, this is God. This is the Lord God who's come to visit. And here is Abraham standing and serving these men as they're seated and eating. It all looks very ordinary, totally normal situation. A very human experience until all of a sudden, verse 9, it starts going supernatural. For verse 9, they, the three men, said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, "Uh, She's in the tent. Now, of course... Here's what's interesting. Sarah's not visible. She's not there. It's, it's Eastern hospitality. The, the wife is not present. It's the, it's the man who's there. That's how it is. But in the moment, do you think, how is this man, how do these people know her name? And, and why are they asking where she is? Like, don't you want to talk to me? I'm here standing serving you. Of course, the Lord God knows where Sarah is. He knows very well where Sarah is. But just like he asked in the Garden of Eden to Adam, where are you? The Lord knew where Adam was, hiding. Just like he asked Cain, where is your brother Abel? The Lord knew where Abel was. Bloodshed, lying on the ground. God knows the answer. But what God is doing is he's getting the recipient ready for the message. In other words, he's saying, I've come to talk to Sarah. Well, Abraham could be like, "Uh, excuse me, how do you know her name is Sarah? But there isn't time to ponder with a morsel of words when next is full from the mouth of God. The message is full of meaning. You could say it's pregnant with meaning. Verse 10, the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. And the Lord God says, I'm going to come and fulfill that promise. You know those promises I've been making since Genesis 12? I'm going to come next year, promises fulfilled. It's going to get so real. How real? Here's how real it's going to get. It's going to get as real in 12 months' time as a crying baby that real if you've had a crying baby in your house things get real right sometimes it can be pleasant you know there's a baby cry that's like really lovely and nice and it just makes it all kind of gooey inside that kind of that one's lovely then there's the one that's like a chainsaw cutting through your brain that's how real it's gonna get tent walls baby you're 99, 100. Ugh, no sleep anymore. God has come to fulfill his promise. And notice this, friends, each time this couple have struggled to believe, God has bolstered their faith by showing he doesn't break his promises. But saying this promise to such elderly folks does seem a little bit unbelievable. Verse 11, now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way women had ceased to be with Sarah. Sarah laughed to herself saying, after I'm worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have this pleasure? Now we know back in Genesis 17 verse 17 that Abraham laughed 
We don't know what sort of laugh it was. There are different types of laughter, of course. But here now, Sarah laughs. Maybe she's laughing with joy. Maybe she's laughing with hopelessness. Maybe she's laughing with hope, disbelief or trust. We're not exactly sure what type of laugh, but we do know from the wording here that in her laugh, there's something she doesn't yet fully believe. She doesn't yet grasp the power and grace of God. The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? Now that's an awkward moment, isn't it? That's an awkward moment. You ever been in one of those situations? It's an awkward moment for Sarah because she didn't even lol. There was no LOL. It was not a laugh out loud. Lol. It was to herself. She laughed presumably quietly to herself. But more than awkward, here's where it gets more awkward. She denies it. To the one who obviously knows her name, who can see everything she does and sees everything she says, he can see her thoughts. And yet she denies it. Verse 15, Sarah denied it and said, I did not laugh. For she was afraid. And he said, no, you did laugh. Sarah has acted falsely. She denied laughing in the face of the one who's made our faces, the one who made us as laughers. The problem here is, of course, is for us reforming. We are not only laughers, but we also, like Sarah, can be liars. Sarah was afraid because she had been caught out. Although she has been covered by the tent door, her life is always uncovered before the Lord. Do you know this? Like, is that the way you live your life? Sometimes I think we pretend there's a tent door here between us and others and us and the Lord. Like we might do the tent door thing between us and others, but between us and the Lord, if you think you've got a tent door between you and him, that's a fantasy. He knows your thoughts. He knows your internal laughter or scorn. And the one who hears us is the one who's actually always with us. What this scene shows us is Sarah's wrong reception of God's promises are revealed. But now look, look at the Lord's response to that. The Lord doesn't come in scolding, accusing, assuming. The Lord comes in with compassion. Look at his response, verse 14. Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I'll return to you at this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Here's, here's what's wonderful about this. Remember Hagar? Hagar, who was not in the covenant, not included in the covenant promises, but Hagar was the one who could say, in her weeping, in her wandering, as she went down to look for home in Egypt again, and the Lord found her by the well, Hagar is the one who says, remember this? She says, the Lord sees me. You are the God who sees. But get this, Sarah is the one that knows the Lord sees inside me. He doesn't just see my emotions. He sees everything. Is anything too hard for the Lord? 
For you and I who have been following along in our Bibles, this series in Genesis, the answer has to be what? A resounding no. Nothing is too hard for the Lord. But of course, this doesn't mean, friends, that now we have an expectation that the Lord will do whatever we want him to do. There are some parts of the wider Christian church in Bendigo and beyond where such an expectation has arisen because people have stopped reading their Bibles. We treat Christ as not the interpretive key for understanding what he promises to give us and praying that, boldness, salvation for people, but we we turn Christ into what we heard in the kids' talk a few weeks ago, a vending machine. I think the way we treat the Lord God in our neck of the woods, in this part of the world, is like, well, it's like a vending machine, yes, but it's like, even more, I find these machines so frustrating and my kids want me to use them all the time. My kids want to use them and I just think it's like a money pit. The claw machine. Do you know that thing? That is a kid's poker machine. That's what that is. As you, as you want to make money, if you want, if you want a business, just buy a whole bunch of claw machines and just set them around where children roam and you will make millions and they will get nothing. So there's a claw machine at the zone and our kids, you know, given any sort of, what do you want to do today? Let's go to the zone! It's like, well, the graphics haven't changed since 1985 when I was playing video games. You can get Fruit Ninja on your iPads, so I'm not sure why I'm paying for it, but the experience of absolute utter noise and chaos and light and sound show to be overwhelmed for an hour or so, sure, let's do it. So we go to the zone and there's a claw machine at the door and another one over here. Anyway, the claw machine. We treat God like a claw machine. Why? Because we go, I want that thing. And so we go, God, get it for me. And then we, we demand and the, we demand the hand of God come down and give me that thing. And then when it doesn't, we go, ah, God doesn't do what I want anyway. Prayer doesn't work. It is too hard for the Lord. Where's the problem? Is it in God? No. It's in us because we thought God was a claw machine, not the Lord. You see, is anything too hard for the Lord? No. We must see this. Nothing is too hard for the Lord. Nothing that he has promised in his word is too hard. Nothing that he has promised in his word is too hard. Jeremiah verse chapter 32 verse 17. Our Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. Jeremiah 32, 26. The Lord, word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Behold, I'm the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? If you actually read the Bible, friends, actually read it. Not like atheists say, yeah, I've read the Bible. Yeah, it's all wrong. It's like, did, did, did you actually read the Bible? Because look, I'm a Christian and I find Bible reading hard. Right? It's, it's, you know, it's hard going. There's some books there that are hard going. Let's be honest there. You know, Leviticus is hard going. Numbers is hard going. Did you actually read the whole Bible? I, I want to say, why don't you invite them? Pray for boldness and invite them to actually read the Bible with you. And, you know, here's a tip. Start in Mark's Gospel. Because at the center of Mark's Gospel is that great question, who do you say I am? That's a great place to start. 
But atheists often say that. They're kind of trump card. Oh, I've read the Bible. It's wrong. Well, I'm not sure you did. But if you actually read the Bible, Christian friends, if you actually read the Bible, God has promised things that will come true and he's given us the privilege to pray for them to happen, for the salvation of people, for churches to grow more in love, in being of one mind, for the salvation of our friends, for the discipling of children. This is the stuff the Lord has promised. Read it and pray through it. A great way to read the Bible is to pray through it. Now, the wonderful thing about this verse, verse 14, Genesis 18, 14, is anything too hard for the Lord, is your Bible maybe has a footnote. Um, and at the bottom of the Bible, it have a little footnote there. It might have a number on the word, well, the word's too hard, because it could be translated, wonderful. In other words, it's possible this is translated, is anything too wonderful for the Lord? The point being, of all of God's glorious promises, however wonderful they might seem, however hard it seems for them to come true, even in the face of hardships like old age and human impossibility, if God has promised it, it will happen. God's word is sure. What does this mean for us, friends? Well, firstly, it means this. The same as it meant for Abraham and Sarah. The whole world is going to be blessed through this couple. There is a child coming and the whole world will be blessed. Now, the child comes and his name is Isaac. You'll never guess what his name means. Well, you will, but it means he laughs. Great name. But there's another son coming. Abraham's greatest descendant. And his name means the Lord saves. His name is Jesus. And he will come And the whole world is going to be blessed through Jesus. In fact, everything in all creation, in all time, you could read from Genesis through Colossians through Revelation, everything is actually about Jesus. Everything's about Jesus. He is the greatest descendant. He's the one who makes Abraham's name great because he fulfills all his promises. So that means for us, it's all about Jesus which brings us to a diagnostic question for our hearts. Are you? Are you all about Jesus? Because that's going to test where you are, track where you are in life. If you're all about your thing or your personal preferences or whatever it is you think is the most important thing in the room, if you're about that and not about Jesus, you are way off track. Our church has a motto. It just sums up the great commandment and the great commission. So the great commandment is love God, love people. The great commission, make disciples. But we have three words, and that is Christ, community, and compassion. Here's the thing. You might be all about community. You might be thinking, that's the thing we need. And it is. It's part of the three. But but if you have community without, firstly, the absolute glorious worship and magnificence of Christ, your community will be dysfunctional and it'll end up dying. It'll be sick because it's not about Jesus. If you are not about Jesus, you are not anywhere where God is actually doing something in the world. 
He's doing it through Jesus. Which means then, although God won't give us whatever we want, because sometimes when we, what we want can be bad for us, by the way, what God does give, what he promises to give, is Jesus, more of Jesus in our life. Could you pray that you would be more like Christ? Could you pray that you would be more like Christ in your life? Sometimes I get this. It's hard to know what to pray for. I've been through a bit of a season. It's even hard to know what to pray, and I'm thankful that other people pray. But sometimes when I don't know what to pray, the best thing I can do is, Lord, make me more like Jesus. The one who goes through seasons in life too, the one who suffers, the one who's falsely accused, the one who's attacked. Make me more like him. Help me to respond like him. That would be a prayer you could pray. You don't know what to pray for? Pray to be more like Jesus, more like Christ. Because he promises to answer that prayer. Look at the New Testament. The whole New Testament is a promise to answer that prayer. To save people and reshape them to be more like Jesus. We can talk to God, as we heard in the kids' talks recently, pour out our hearts to God like Abraham did. And this is what he does next. Because Abraham is called a friend of God. And here's the wonder. We can be friends with God too. James 2.23, James says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And we get that, I think, in our reformed evangelical circles. We go, yep, got it. You know, legally righteous in Christ. But we, we miss the next bit. And he was called a friend of God. This is not just a theological, cerebral thing. This is a thing of the heart. He was called a friend of God. And you can be a friend too. Come and see. Have a look at this. Verse 17. The three men finished their feast and they looked down towards Sodom. And the Lord said, verse 17, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation. All the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. Here we see into the heart of this friendship between Abraham and God. God is the one that initiates the relationship. Abraham receives it by grace through faith. And look at verse 19. Verse 19 is the framework of how any relationship with God happens. This is very important to see. I think sometimes churches in Bendigo and beyond, Christians, we assume the Old Testament was, how do you get friends with God in the Old Testament? How do you have a relationship with God in the Old Testament? Well, you need to do the works. Do the law and then you, you become friends with God. And then and all of a sudden God changes his mind into the New Testament and goes, yeah, that wasn't working, let's, let's do it by grace. That's not how it works. It's not how the, the Bible operates at all. From Genesis 3 onwards, it's all grace. Have a look at verse 19. This is the framework of our relationship with God works in the Old Testament, the New Testament, at all times. Verse 19, notice what God does first and our response. I have chosen him that he may command his children and his house will laugh me to keep the way of the Lord. Notice this. God is the one that brings the friendship by his grace. He's the one that established it. He's, he's the one that called Abraham. He's the one that started the friendship. And then he says, now just live the way of love, the law of love. Live for me. Trust and obey. Not obey first and then the trusting will come. You, you, it's actually saved by grace first and then the fruit of that is the works, the law, keeping love, summarised as love. And of course, when we fail to do that well, which we do, fail to love well, we don't do good works all the time, in fact we do some pretty bad works, what do we need to do? Go back to the beginning, back to the grace part. 
Christianity is always saved by grace, live by grace. You see the pattern? It's the same pattern throughout the Bible. Look at Israel. Israel was saved out of slavery from Egypt to be God's people and worship him and then given the law to live for him. Not the other way around. They weren't given the law to live for him and then they get saved. They're saved first by grace, then given the law just to live out with love. It's never the other way around. We don't get into relationship with God by working our way of our own righteousness. It's always by his gracious initiative. And then, then we keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, which is what's quoted here in verse 19. That's the way of God. That's the way of friendship with God. And God gives Abraham his word, his revealed word of righteousness and justice. And then he says, there's been an outcry, verse 20. There's an outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah. It's great and their sin is very grave. I will go down to see whether they've done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. Now, whether the outcry is from the victims of Sodom and Gomorrah and whether the outcry is the volume of evil that has come up from the city, like it's just such a noise of evil that the Lord has heard it, we don't exactly know. But what the Lord is showing Abraham and showing us, not only is he the Lord that that just sees things, but he comes down to do something about it. You see what's going on here? It's the language of the Tower of Babel of Genesis 11 all over again. In Genesis 11, the Lord came down to see that tall tower. In that tall tower, they said, you know what we're going to do? We're going to build a tower so big and make a name for ourselves so great that everyone will wonder at us. And they look at this tall tower they built. Isn't it amazing? It's so big. And God says, I need to go down and have a look at it. It's so small. It's the same language. The Lord has come down to personally have a look at Sodom and Gomorrah. The Lord is accommodating by his grace into human language here in pre-incarnate form for the purpose of showing Abraham what friendship with God looks like. Jesus says to his disciples in John 15, we were there in John 15 not long ago, he says this, I don't call you servants anymore. Do you remember? He says, I don't call you servants anymore because a servant doesn't know what the master is doing. Now I call you friends because all I've heard from my father I've made known to you. Friends know what friends do. Friends know what friends are doing and the Lord is showing his friends something important that the Lord does. The Lord acts justly, righteously. For shall not the judge of the earth do what is just? As the men turn towards Sodom, Abraham stands before the Lord and Abraham draws near to God. And this is that first time he starts praying, he starts questioning. Verse 23, that Abraham drew near and said, um, uh, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? It's a beautiful moment, isn't it? We see in the book of Hebrews, we know what... Abraham does what we can do. We, we heard this in our call to worship, Hebrews 4.16. This is what Abraham's doing. Let us draw near. Let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. Abraham is drawing near 
because he knows he can. He knows God well enough that he's a gracious God and a just God. And he knows that because of praying on behalf of those who are righteous in God's sight, who might live in Sodom, God will see them too. Of course, Abraham does know a righteous person in Sodom. Do you know who that is? We read in Peter's letter, calls him righteous, even though he does a lot of things that are messed up. Well, don't we all? But Abraham knows there's someone in Sodom living there right now who's righteous. It's his nephew, Lot. 2 Peter, and if he rescued righteous Lot, Peter writes, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. Abraham believes the Lord knows how to rescue the righteous. And so based on God's character and the Lord's friendship, he prays, notice this, look through this prayer, six times. Six times he prays. What are we like at this? I prayed once about that and nothing happened. Like, like that's on God. I prayed once and he did nothing for me. Well, good on you for being better than God. Abraham rather humbly prays six times, knowing who he's speaking to. He doesn't treat God like the magic claw. He treats God like God. And for six times he prays, I know your character. Will you then sweep away? Would you do such a thing? Far be it from you. You're the judge of all the earth. You'll do what is just. And the Lord responds with his gracious and gracious answer again and again, a gracious and righteous answer. Verse 26, if I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will not destroy it. And what follows is Abraham keeps approaching the throne of grace again and again and again, asking the judge of all the earth to do what is just. Here Abraham, who is chosen by God to be a blessing for the nations, is asking the Lord for the nation's salvation. He's pleading for sinners. One day his greatest son, Jesus Christ, will do the same by saying, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. This is the ministry of our church reforming that we would be pleading for the work of mission, that we would be pleading that the Lord will have compassion on the nations and our neighbours for people like Will and Barge to become brothers in Christ and join the mission too. But I think we're so fast at writing people off, even not just the nations or other people groups or other religions or our neighbours, we do this in our own churches. We write people off. We talk about people. Could we pray for people instead? What gives us the right to be God's place, God's throne? Could we not pray for people? For salvation's sake. That's what Abraham does. He doesn't hold a bad word for Sodom and Gomorrah and those that he knows it's a wicked city, but what's he do? Praying for their sake. Again and again. And he goes to the Lord who is right and just and good and gracious. And he even says, would you destroy it for the sake of ten? Now Abraham knows at least one. And we'll see next week why there's at least just one. 
Even among the family of Lot, there's just one. That's for next week. But for now, do you see this? This is how we can be friends with God. We can pray this way too. We can say our prayers based on God's promises and his covenant character. Many of us find prayer hard for various reasons. Lots of, can I say this, lots of understandable reasons. I understand. I have found prayer hard and I'm a pastor. I'm weak. I'm a sinner too. And I have found prayer hard. I have been through seasons of life where I find it so hard to pray, let alone to pray for others like Will and Barge. And I'm often like the one who's, well, I'm like Sarah, because I'd rather laugh to myself than pray to the Lord who listens. Oh God, can, can anything good come out of this? Can God do something here? But what I need to see again and again is what the Lord has shown us today. That we can hold on to the promises of God in the gospel. He promises these things. We can pray as his friends and we can pray based not on my performance. See, what happens is this. We haven't been praying for a while. We're not praying very well. And what do we do? Oh, God's displeased with me, so I'm just not going to bother praying. I'm not going to try and start. No, no, no. Look at the throne of grace. Look at the one who sits. Look at the one who went to the cross and pray. He says, you can come, approach, draw near and pray. You haven't been praying for a while? That's the point. I saved you by grace, not by your performance. Come and pray. Draw near and pray based not on your performance, but on his character, on his performance, because his performance is impeccable. His performance is righteous. And this gives hope, I think, to our flagging prayer life. Vitality even, even when you struggle with prayer, when you pray, you can say your prayers based on the promises of God and based on his character, not based on your performance or your failings. You pray based on his perfections. And it means you can pray even with feeble words, perhaps even a few words, even fearful words like Abraham. Because we know we're approaching the throne of grace. Abraham is the one that says, I know I'm dust and ashes. I know who I am. But do you know this as well? Abraham also knew that he was precious dust and ashes to the one who makes dust and ashes and breathes life into them by his spirit. Precious dust. If we know we can draw near to God and ask him who promises to answer our prayers... He promises to save people. He promises to listen to his friends. We have such confidence to pray. And for us now, prayer is the ministry, church. I I, I really get concerned if I hear prayer being kind of like dissed. Like, prayer, it's all you got? Prayer? It's like, what what are you talking about? Yes, that is all we've got. It's prayer. It's it's That's how God works in the world. We are in the ministry of prayer. Well, what have you got? What's the other option? Just talk about it? Just talk about people rather than pray for people? Is it working? Prayer is the power of God to work. We, 
too easily or too badly treat prayer as some sort of lame Christianese. That's not lame. That's like saying to God, who gives us the gift of prayer, by the way, um, hey, God, we think prayer is nothing important. Got anything else? But James writes this, James 5.16, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Were Abraham's prayers for Sodom answered? Well, you need to come next week, but you'll see, yes. The city was destroyed, but the righteous were saved. For reforming, what is before us? We have the opportunity of our lives, our very short and fragile, feeble, fearful lives to pray. Yes, we put on things like gathered prayer, but this is not an advertisement for gathered prayer at 5 p.m. tonight here in the cafe, supper provider, come along, it's really easy. Others can pray if you don't want to pray. That's not just an advertisement for that, but as in we can rely on God in everything. That's what prayer is, pouring out our lives to God, rely on him for everything, teaching our children to pray. That's the heart of household worship. Teaching children to trust in Jesus is teaching them to pray. Are you going to trust Jesus with this when it's really hard? When there's bullies at school? When life is not going well? When you keep falling over? Are you going to trust Jesus with this by praying? Teaching them at the dinner table? Teaching them at their beds? Teaching them in their crying moments? And teaching them in their joy to be thankful? Teach them that prayer is the ministry of the church, is the work of the church. That we're praying and are bringing people because we bring people along prayerfully, boldly, wanting them to meet Jesus too. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Can I ask this? Is anything too wonderful for the Lord? Let me finish with this, and this is a really important thing to see. You can tell the difference between a Christian or a believer like Abraham and Sarah You can tell the difference between a Christian and someone who is not. Here's how you tell. The difference between a Christian and, say, a religious person, a legalist, you know, a person that wants to kind of operate by works. You can tell a Christian, the difference between a Christian and a religious person, here's the difference. It's wonder. For... Christ's church has a wonder about it, doesn't it? Christ's church will not necessarily be organisationally perfect. We'll not get everything right. We'll not necessarily have the best light show in town or sound show. We won't even have the best preachers in town. I said it. But Christ's church will have one thing about us, that verse translated as too hard or wonderful, we'll have wonder. See, if you ask a religious person, why are you a Christian? How did you become a Christian? Imagine we're asking Will or Barge, but imagine you're asking a religious person. A religious person says this. They say they become a Christian by comparing themselves to others. I, I grew up this way. Um, you know, others have got all the problems around here and I've got no problems and I'm, I'm just a better person. I'm better for it. That's a religious person. A religious person has no self-reflection, no repentance and no wonder. But ask a Christian, a genuine born again Christian, ask them, are you a Christian? And here's their answer. It'll go something like this, almost laughing to themselves. Yeah, I can hardly believe it myself. <laughs> Get this. That Jesus would die on the cross for me? Like me? Um, 
that he would love me like that. And if you knew me and you knew what I'm like, you'd be laughing too. Let's pray and wonder in song. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your promises and the confidence you give us to pray based on your character. Give us now that wonder with prayer life that knows nothing is too hard for you, Lord, that the things you promise, you promise to come true. We're so thankful to behold you, our God, and to do so with wonder now in song. In Jesus' name, amen.